Hello, friends. It's me, Casey Bozell. Back when I started this whole podcast, one of the things I was most excited to talk about was the existence of castrati opera singers. I don't know why this fascinated me so much as a music student, but it's a really dark, really twisted thing that was pretty popular in our industry for a lot longer than it should have been. Originally airing on May 29th, 2020, I give you episode five, Castrati. Enjoy! This episode of Keep Classical Weird makes many references to a surgical procedure that is performed on the male anatomy, just in case you have young ears nearby who wonder what some of these words mean. Today on Keep Classical Weird, we get into one of the most bizarre, grotesque, and curious things that humans have done to other humans for the sake of art. Have you heard of the term castrati? I have not. What if I told you it's something to do with opera singers? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Do you think castrati sounds like any sort of word in the English language? It does. What does it sound like? It sounds like castration. That's right. Welcome, friends, to episode five of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today we're exploring the world of the castrati. Now, if the mention of this word has made you as wiggly and uncomfortable as it made my friend Joe in the last clip, congratulations, you have joined the rest of us. The idea of surgical sterilization in order to enhance vocal prowess seems like an awkward one to navigate. Our friend, Dr. Sophia Taggart, confirmed that suspicion for me. This is my least favorite topic to talk about with my students because, well, it's just so awkward. Those poor students are sitting there listening listening to me, We, you know, and and then all of a sudden I start talking about castration. And so it's just, bam. Okay. So anyway, castrati. Essentially, these were uh, boys who were castrated before they hit puberty, uh, generally around the age of 10. Um, but as late as age 12 and, uh, they would go into the church, uh, choirs and sing as choir boys for the most part, uh, study music, study singing and, um, a few lucky castrati would be able to make a name for themselves on the stage in opera and, um, travel around Europe and they were a very popular uh vocal type and a singing type that that lasted for way longer than i thought they would castration has been used as a form of control and subjugation since early recorded history but the castrati first appeared in a musical capacity in italy in the mid 1500s shortly before the first opera took place And the practice lasted for centuries. It was not officially outlawed everywhere until 1870. Castrating a boy before he hits puberty will generally stop his voice from dropping, meaning that they could take on roles written in the upper registers of opera. But it wasn't just the ability to hit the high notes. There were several physiological side effects on these men that combined together to help them become operatic superstars. The vocal quality was just incredibly unique. The 
physical uh, result of being castrated when they were 10 allowed larger rib cages. Um, they grew very tall and they were quite lean. And um, the what happened was their voice was incredibly agile. And so um, at a time when opera was becoming really popular and especially when it went public, um, when opera went public, uh, they had to rely on, you know, their, their stars to bring in the numbers. Right. So, uh, you, in order to get a big audience, you had to bring in the, the big names. And for a while there outside of Rome, like in Venice and, and other cities, it was always the Sopranos. You know, they were, they were paid six times as much as the composers who were writing the the operas themselves, right? So it was all about the stars that they had on the stage. And so what I, what I assume is, um, although the Sopranos were, you know, amazing voices and what have you, I think as opera became more and more popular and spread across Europe, the need to, you know, be faster, louder and better just kept getting, you know, more expanded. Castration provided the opportunity for these bodies to become singing machines. Their abilities became an operatic composer's dream. Humanity had come very close to figuring out a way to design an opera singer. One of the last surviving castrati, Alessandro Moreschi, made a series of recordings and was the only castrato to do so. He was older and had less facility of his voice by this time, and the recording quality, being in the early 20th century, left something to be desired. But this recording of him singing Ave Maria still gives us a glimpse into the unique sound these men were able to produce. phrases in castrato roles are like incredibly long so like when little old me goes to sing some long very famous uh castrato aria i'm like why is this phrase so long and like there's nowhere to breathe this is mezzo soprano alex romano the practice of unnecessary castration has ended but the opera roles that were written for the castrati are of course still sung today Sometimes you'll see them performed with men who have excellent facility of their high voice, but they're often performed by women like Alex, with a similar vocal range to the castrati. In a lot of the cases of the most famous castrato singers, the vocal floridity is incredible. So like Carlo Broschi, who's the Farinelli, like the very famous, there's a movie about him, you know, um, he's he's referenced in a lot of sort of more pop, pop circles. Um 
his music in particular has these crazy, like two octave jumps and like, you know, crazy, uh, florid passages traveling over multiple registers. Uh, and you just kind of sign on for that virtuosity. There are several categories of operatic voice. And for context, I thought it would be most helpful to have them quickly defined. So here comes Alex with a huge amount of information. For the most part, um, opera singers, quote unquote, opera singers, singers and and classical musicians function with five, I would say five major voice parts. So we have soprano, which is functionally the highest voice part, mezzo-soprano, which is like a mid-level female voice. Then we have countertenor, which is a male voice that sings in a mezzo-soprano register, so a super high register. Baritone, which is like a, oh, I skipped tenors. Oh, they'll be so mad. (laughs) So under countertenor is tenors who are the most important member of the vocal family, um, really because they sing all of the most famous arias because they're the most incredible musician athletes. (laughs) Um, So we have tenors and then baritones and then basses at the bottom of the register. And then each of those has like select gradients which talks about sort of how florid your music is, how many notes you sing in a particular phrase. So like for myself, I'm categorized as a lyric mezzo-soprano, which means I sing things like Rossini uh, that requires a lot of notes and it requires me to like use my whole range and my voices of a medium weight. So that's kind of, you know, there are certain vocal characteristics that lend themselves to where you fall. For the most part, I would say sex generally delineates some vocal characteristics, uh, but the deciding factor is really a balance of comfortable range, which we call tessitura, and then timbre of the voice, like what what I've been calling vocal weight. Alex has sung major mezzo-soprano roles, specifically written for women, but her vocal category also means that she sings castrati roles. And there's one more gender-bending definition to include here. There are characters in opera that are known as pants roles. A pants role um, is typically written for a female voice and was intended on stage to be a woman playing a man. Whereas in our modern age, women have started to play castrato roles because of the, like, as I said, the tessitura, that comfortable range, isn't typical of... Uh, most tenors and baritones. There are a couple of theories as to why there was this adoption of women playing a man on stage, um, kind of like, you know, the Shakespeare tradition of men playing every character regardless of, of gender. But the theories are that young boys, most most of these roles are young boy boys. So a character like Carabino in The Marriage of Figaro is the page. And so he's like 14, and his, maybe his voice hasn't changed yet. And so he can be played by a woman because it's going to be a higher voice anyway. Um, but then there's another sort of like more, I guess, second wave feminism theory <laughs> that is really about the power dynamics on stage. And the idea that Carabino and, say, Octavian in uh, Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, these are two young men who most of their interactions on stage are with women. And 
to that end, like a lot of the plot twists and their sort of actions are dependent on a woman influencing them. And so in order for the audience to believe that, it couldn't be a man on stage, right? In order for the audience, this is one of those like very subversive ideas that have subversively sort of sexist ideas. Um, in order for an audience to believe that a woman could have power over a man, that man had to be functionally a woman. What is the experience like when you are preparing for an operatic role for a character whose gender does not match your own? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a big nerd. And so I love uh, source material and I love digging into the psychology of a character. Um, that's my favorite thing. So when it comes to portraying a character whose gender does not sort of match my own, I really make an effort to actually, my, my inroad is literature. And so I read a ton of memoir specifically for this purpose, because I want to know what the psycho the, the, the articulated psychology is of a person in this position. So I, and there's a ton of memoir, thankfully, like this is a, this is a rebirthed genre that I have taken full advantage of. Um, because it means that I have access to anything from, you know, a woman going through a particular experience to a man going through a, through a particular experience through, you know, a trans journey through a particular experience. You know, I though all of those things are articulated and available in a way that they haven't ever been before. And so that has really been my inroad is literature and, and reading memoir and um, delving into the psychology of a character. Beyond that, you know, my training, training was hard for uh, pants rolls because often the fix, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. And I'm, I apologize to everyone who told me to do this in advance, but literally the advice was uh, stick a sock in your pants and walk around for a little while. Right. Is that effective? I mean, I don't know what it would be doing. It doesn't actually change my thoughts about anything. You know, like, okay, so, and, and it goes back to that question of like, what are the physical attributes of gender? Is it really just the way that I walk? Is that the most important thing about gender? I mean, I, I disagree, but, um, and so that tool didn't particularly work for me. In The Marriage of Figaro, there's a scene where Carabino uh, has to dress up like a woman. And so, but he's already a woman. Right. So we're in this like 12th night space. Um, and as a woman playing a man who's dressing up as a woman, you know, we're, we're in this like crazy twilight zone of like, what is gender? <laughs> right. And what are the markers? Like, what are the, what are the tells, you know, of gender and how do we communicate them? Which in a mod to a modern audience is super interesting because like, we have totally different perceptions about what that actually means. Singers like Alex are constantly navigating the boundaries of gender, artistic integrity, and refining their craft. The practice of castrati has made her job description much more complicated than one would expect. I had a wonderful conversation with Alex where we delved even deeper into the subject. 
I'll let you know next week where you can access this extended interview. One of the big questions we haven't yet tackled is, why? We know the outcome for this procedure was sometimes a lucrative career, but what is the initial motivation behind signing up for this? This was often a way for um, maybe sons in a family, like if a family had a multiple sons, right? Usually the first son would get all the money and then the rest had to make a career for themselves of some sort. And so the younger son would often, um, you know, look for different means. But uh, really at a time when opera was becoming really popular in the 17th century, Castrati were becoming more well-known towards the 18th century. This was a good way to not totally ensure that their sons would have a career, but it certainly opened up a lot of opportunities because Castrati, if they were famous and um, well-known, would be able to move through the upper echelon of society really easily. And they were, um, when they maybe got to a point where they couldn't sing anymore, a lot of them transitioned into roles as ambassadors from certain courts. Um, so, I mean, it was it was not just a musical decision. It was a career, future, and societal decision. In Rome, women were banned from the stage. They couldn't perform music in public, right? So if you had an opera that was a love story, you're going to have to have a castrati singing the, the female role. And so I think that that is another reason why that took off. Women were not only banned, but so banned that that the choice, the preferable choice, was genital mutilation, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what people chose over writing roles for women. I, I like to think of it more as... Um, those men were so willing to sacrifice their manhood to save women the embarrassment of being on stage <laughs> and being ogled by male male views. <laughs> so they were so that so it's the ultimate form of chivalry is what you're talking about. It really, I I really think that's that's what it was. Wow. Except for it wasn't. It was definitely oppression of women. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Many thanks to our guests, Dr. Sophia Taggart at Washington State University and mezzo-soprano Alex Romano. You can find Alex on Facebook at Alex Romano Mezzo-Soprano. Alex is spelled A-L-E-K-S. And on Instagram at A-R-O-Mezzo. Those will also be up on our show page at keepclassicalweird.com. Our theme music you're hearing is by the always fabulous Thomas Barber. Check him out at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. This episode wraps up our first set of shows, and next week you'll have a trailer episode available for the next set, so keep tuning in. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird. <laughs>